The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I think we're all here. Um, I think we'll sit now. Um, We'll have a sitting for about 20 minutes. And it'll sort of be semi-guided. I might say a few words here and there. Um, First of all, just do whatever you normally do and try and bring your attention onto your breath bring your mind and your body together and bring yourself into the present Just sense um, and appreciate your own state and know where you're starting from. (coughs) Follow the breath into your body, right deep inside and as you exhale follow it out beyond your nose focus of this sitting is what or where is myself? Start with the body. Let your attention rest in your body. Notice if there are areas of tension or discomfort. If there are, try and let them go. If you're used to doing a body scan, then you can scan through the whole body. And while you're doing it, ask yourself, am I my body 
then turn your attention to your feelings. Just those barest feelings of what you're drawn to and what you resist. Notice what your mind is drawn to, what takes you away from just sitting in the present. And notice where you resist when your mind takes you somewhere you don't want to go. And ask yourself, am I my feelings? And then move on to your perceptions. Can you feel the air on your skin? Hear the cars driving past in the street? Is there a scent in the air? Do you feel the light on your eyes? Notice which perceptions you were drawn to and which you push away. Does your mind intrude with thoughts? Notice all of this and ask yourself, am I my perceptions? 
and then turn to your mental formations or your dispositions. Do I detect hope? Do I detect fear? Are my perceptions colored by a certain disposition? A predisposition to interpret the sound or the feel in some specific way. And then ask yourself, am I my mental formation? And then contemplate consciousness. Is it your consciousness? 
Is it bare consciousness? Is it distinguishable from your body, your feelings, perceptions, and mental formations? Am I my consciousness? As you bring your attention <coughs> back to your breath, notice the air as it comes into your nostrils. And notice it leaving when you exhale. And ask yourself, where does myself begin? And where does myself end?
Thank you. I don't know if anyone wants to uh, make any comments about that or... This uh, meditation is one that um, I keep saying, yes, yes, I'm everything of that. And um, yet I'm taught that the answer is no. And I can see myself as a process. Um, and my body, mind, and perception are all part of that process. But if I don't have a body, if I don't have a mind, and if I don't have perception, I don't exist. And you do exist. I know, it's perfect. Thank you. Mm. You do exist. I, I'm, I'm not sure it's a problem, but uh. okay. Um, yeah, follow that. That's wonderful. I'm going to drone on though and tell you um, I'm going to talk about emptiness in in the Mahayana and later because this is where emptiness gets really juicy, I think. Um, and here, ideas of the emptiness of self become extended to ideas of the emptiness of all phenomena, even down to the emptiness of emptiness itself. Um, Do you want to sit somewhere else? Would it help? What? Would it help to sit somewhere else? Well, it was okay up until just a few minutes ago. I was wondering if there was a microphone open. Okay. Well, well, wave if, if you're having problems. And please, if anyone can't hear me, you know, do say so. Um... You know, the main teachings of the Mahayana start with the, what's called the Prajnaparamita literature, which is a collection of texts which date actually from around the first century AD to um, several centuries later. And they're very different. I mean, they go from the Prajnaparamita in, you know, which means the supreme wisdom, um, in 100,000 lines to a tantric text that is ah. So, um, as you can see, there's an incredible difference in, in the presentation. Um, these teachings are considered to be the teachings of the Buddha, but they were all given in a rather mystical manner. Um, whether you take them as literally the teachings of the Buddha or not, I think is up to you. Um, very central 
to consider a Mahayana teachings are the texts of one Nagarjuna, and especially a text called the Mula Madhyamika Karika. Um, the Madhyamika is the sort of quintessential expression of emptiness. Um, it's the root text of the middle way, I think, of the no, of the great text, anyway. And if the middle way that the Buddha expressed in early Buddhism was that between luxury and ascetism, the middle way is now becomes that between eternalism and nihilism. Something exists essentially eternally and something does not exist. And the middle way goes between. Emptiness is taught as no other than the interdependence which was expressed in dependent origination. In the dedication of the Mulamadhyamaka Karika, Nagarjuna writes, I pay homage to the fully awakened one, the supreme teacher who has taught the doctrine of relational origination, which is dependent origination, the blissful cessation of all phenomenal thought constructions. Um, in, a, in a somewhat more poetic and freer translation done later by a, um, Stephen Batchelor, he says, I bow to Buddhas who teach contingency. Nagarjuna had a very particular way of arguing for emptiness. He said, I do not put forward any positions, any arguments. It's, it's a form of quietism, I suppose we would say today. And he argued by means of something called the tetralemma, a fourfold logic of complementarity that I think goes beyond contradiction. He explains that because of interdependence, of dependent origination, everything is marked by eight negations. Non-origination, non-extinction, non-destruction, non-permanence, non-identity, non-differentiation, non-coming into being, non-going out of being. A path between is and is not. Using these arguments that really deconstruct every possible position that any opponent might hold, Nagarjuna sets out to demonstrate the emptiness of all phenomena. It's, it's a process of elimination. He addresses different topics in the different chapters of this work, such as time, self, anguish or suffering, seeing, walking, etc. And towards the end of the work, Nagarjuna declares that dependent origination, which in the verse I'm going to read you, which is another of Stephen Batchelor's, who translates it as contingency. Dependent arising and contingency 
and emptiness are one and the same and constitute the middle path of Buddhism. Contingency is emptiness, which, contingently configured, is the middle way. Everything is contingent. Everything is empty. Some of you may know there's a, there's a wonderful description that uh, Thich Nhat Hanh gives about a piece of paper. That someone, do you know it? You know, see this piece of paper in front of you. And then he goes to show all the myriad of things and causes and conditions that have brought this paper into being. The, the trees it came from, the logger who felled the tree, his parents, the miller, the, everything is in this piece of paper. It is empty of essence, but it is very definitely there. When emptiness, another verse from Nagarjuna, when emptiness is possible, everything is possible. Were emptiness impossible, nothing would be possible. And I think when emptiness is is realized this way, what remains is suchness. And indeed, in in another verse, Nagarjuna says, life is no different from nirvana. Nirvana, no different from life. But reiterating... um, the stance on opinions that we saw in the four eights back at the end, um, that our priest without borders, who moved between is and is not. So the awakened one does not hold contrived views of is and is not. Nagarjuna says, Buddhas say emptiness is relinquishing opinions. Believers in emptiness are incurable. If you grasp emptiness, he actually says in a a verse, emptiness is a snake, and if you grasp it badly, it will bite you. So that which liberates us may also bite us if we hold it in the wrong way. Um, Interestingly, the only Pali text um, that Nagarjuna cites is from the Majjhima Nikaya, and it refers to this, and it says, this world, Kachana, it's called the discourse to Kachana, for the most part depends on a duality, upon the notion of there is, and the notion of there is not. But for one who sees with complete intelligence the arising of the world as it happens, there is no notion of there is not in regard to the world. And for one who sees in complete intelligence the ceasing of the world as it happens, there is no notion of there is in regard to the world. There is, Kachana, this is one dead end. There is not, this is another dead end. Without veering towards either of these dead ends, the Tathagata teaches the Dhamma by the middle. As Nagarjuna states, 
The Buddha rejected both it is and it is not in his discourse to Kachana. But emptiness does not entail non-existence. It does not entail it is not any more than it is. Phenomena like cells exist, but not in the manner which we, through ignorance, assume. They exist in dependence on causes and conditions on their own parts, the interdependence of parts and wholes, and on the designations we confer on them through usage and through language. They are dependently originated and therefore empty of inherent singular existence. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. In probably the best known, the first line of the best known text, Prajnaparamita text, which is the Heart Sutra. Later philosophers put incredible um, philosophies and theories on top of teachings of emptiness. Um, Madhyamika teachings turn back on themselves, pointing to the emptiness of emptiness. Emptiness is the relinquishing of opinions, not the replacement of one opinion with another. That's grasping the snake. I think I said earlier that the two pillars, the two wings of the Mahayana teachings are Shunyata, emptiness, the wisdom of emptiness, prajna, and karuna, the compassion that arises. I think understanding emptiness, implication, and interdependence leads to compassion, to feeling with. That's the Madhyamika teachings on emptiness, which is, as I said, um, sorry, the later philosophers complicate the picture enormously. Um, there are different schools of thought. I don't want to go into that. Um, but later commentators divide into di- <coughs> different schools and different interpretations. And there are certainly in Tibetan teachings arguments about polemics, which make, you know, they're, they're rather like the Christian ones of how many angels dance on the head of a pin. And I certainly don't want to go there. Um, But there is just one thing I want to say. The Madhyamika presentation of emptiness is largely, I think, a non-mystical, imminent presentation of reality and the limits of language and knowledge. 
Some later commentators and practitioners found this to be too cerebral, possibly too difficult, potentially nihilistic for followers. So there became a split between um, the non-implicative Madhyamika, which was the Prasangika Madhyamika, which was a later term given to the teachings based on Nagarjuna, presentation of emptiness, and one that presents emptiness as a little bit more positive as having its own qualities. Um, I think you probably all know that the teachings of early Buddhism are often considered the first turning of the wheel of Dharma. The second turning is considered usually Madhyamika, these teachings on emptiness I've just been talking about. There is a third turning, which is, again, I don't want to go into huge details, but really the schools of Yogacara, Chittamatra, and a lot of the Vajrayana teachings, and quite a lot of Far Eastern Buddhism, really come out of the third turning of the wheel, which I would say, in a huge generalization, is more mystical, more influenced by practice than polemic, um, the two truths that, the, that Nagarjuna put forward or that the Madhyamika explicitly taught, the truth of the conventional and the ultimate, the ultimate being the truth of emptiness, becomes in the third turning three natures. The imaginary nature, which is our conventional, if you like, misunderstanding of the world, the dependent the view that all things are dependently originated, and the perfect nature, which is the ultimate nature of emptiness. And in in this interpretation, emptiness is kind of allowed to have an ultimate nature, which to the Madhyamika is dodgy. Um, If emptiness is in the Madhyamika is self-emptiness, the emptiness as taught in the third turning is empty of all other, but is full of its own qualities. Its essence is emptiness. Its nature is knowing. Its energy or its action or its compassion is unimpeded. And rather than the emptiness of self or the emptiness of all phenomena, here emptiness and non-duality is that of the relationship between consciousness and its object, between knower and known. And what remains is what is often termed original mind. And when you get to this, the the distinction between emptiness, original mind and Buddha nature is often quite blurry. These teachings, as I've said, center on the nature of mind. To its followers, this third term evades the potential or the inherent nihilism of the the Madhyamika. To followers of the Madhyamika, to the Madhyamika, it includes the danger 
of positing something substantial, something transcendent. All that Madhyamika emptiness tried to evade. And in fact, perhaps a leaning towards the Atman, which in the context of which early Buddhism taught the emptiness of self, anatta, which if you see in the context of the pre-Buddhist world, Buddhism challenges the Atman of the Upanishads by teaching anatta. Does that make sense? Please. When, when did the idea about original mind, when, when and where did those ideas? Ooh, you've got me there. Um, original mind. It, it sort of comes, I mean, it's very definitely, it's there in Zen Buddhism. It's there in Tibetan, certainly in Dzogchen, in the pure awareness that is Rikpa. Um, I'm trying to think of dates. You know, I would say it was all post about 800, 700, 800, but I could be wrong on this. Nagarjuna was sort of one, two hundreds. then the Yogacara came a little bit later, but not a lot. So say from 400 on, you kind of get this happening. Then the Madhyamika became almost systematized, probably around 6 and 800, around, around then in India. Then your, your, your greater commentators, and a lot were Tibetan, come quite a lot later, Tsongkhapari's 12th century. Um, Original mind, it is a difficult one. I'm not sure. There was a very early, there's a, there's a huge stories in, in Tibetan Buddhism about something which was called the dialogue at Lhasa. And it possibly never was a dialogue, and it may not have happened at Lhasa. But there was a split between um, two strands, one of which sort of said you didn't need to meditate, you just had to sit with the nature of mind. And one that said you should meditate. And there are, there are great stories about it. It's always called the monk Hoshang Mahayana, which is possibly a description rather than a name. But basically, the other guy whose name I forget now um, won the debate, so they say. And... Huashang Mahayana disappeared off into the mountains. But basically it was, scholars now think, um, a kind of collision between Indian Buddhism and Chinese Buddhism and the Indian in, in Tibet and the Indian Buddhism one. Um, and you can definitely see that. I mean, it's quite interesting because I think the schools of Buddhism that 
um, uphold original mind and this kind of resting in the nature of original mind are those that are most mystical. Interestingly, in Tibet, they pretty much go along with the least political of them, the ones that did not hold power, the Nyingma, the Kagyu later. Um, the, the Gelugpa, the Dalai Lama school, is very definitely of, of um, the Madhyamika persuasion of the emptiness of emptiness. And there is a huge discussion in Tibetan polemic between what they call rangtong, which is self-emptiness, which is the emptiness of the Madhyamika, and zhendong, which is the other emptiness, which is the emptiness which is more like original mind. Um, yes. I'm confused about how original mind escapes essentialism. Well, some people would say it doesn't. I mean, that it is, this is the argument against it by the Madhyamika, that you're bringing in something essential, something transcendent, something non-compounded by the back door. So all this talk of original mind and what may be an essence in us or our true nature brings to mind in me questions about um, why do thoughts arise, how do, how do they arise, um, to what extent are they conditioned or not. The idea of watching the mind in meditation and trying to understand how all this happens and to what extent it's driven by conditioning or attachments or reversions. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how useful it is if we're going toward awakening or have that idea? It is to ponder these things and to understand them. I don't know. My, my sort of personal feeling, which is, is not awfully thoroughly worked out, but is that it all depends if you're a glass half empty or a glass half full sort of person. Um, that if you... That there is this argument. Oh, and, and, uh, sorry, glass half full, glass half empty. And if you're a devotional or a devotionally challenged kind of person. If... Me too. Um, but if you're, if, you're, if you're happy with analysis and you find devotion not very easy, you're probably very happy with the Madhyamika understanding of the emptiness of emptiness, and it's, it's quite logical. If, but for some people, that is sincerely a little bit lacking in juice, lacking in flavor, or... Um, it leads towards the negative. I mean, this is a very unacademic exposition of it. Um, but it's sort of where I've come to. And it certainly came, the more positive, the Zhendong 
exposition of emptiness came out of, I would say, deep practice and a feeling that the Madhyamika exposition was too negative for some people and went too far. It, it is our middle way between nihilism and eternalism. And the adherents of Madhyamika would say that the adherents of original mind are going towards eternalism and bringing in something by the back door. Whereas the adherents of, of original mind and the other emptiness belief that emptiness has qualities believe that the Madhyamika leads you to, um, leads followers, gives them no hope, gives them no um, incentive to practice. So I think the intention of both is to bring people to practice, which is possibly where I think it depends what kind of a person you are as to what... Sorry. What kind of a practice you are drawn to? I can't get too excited. I, I think it's sort of horses for courses, but um, I'm not sure. That the, the, there is a term I think some of the Tibetan writers on Zogchen have called themselves the great Madhyamika and say we are not positing anything eternal and essential but we are encouraging people to practice and it is helpful to feel that original mind has these qualities that the essence if you find in Dzogchen texts the, and, and in I don't know if any of you have sat or, or taken retreats with any of the Dzogchen or Tibetan masters and had the pointing out instructions. And this is definitely what you get. The essence is emptiness, the nature is knowing. And the, it's a word used for compassion, but it's also the activity is unimpeded. And in the text, these are the sort of poetic descriptions So, um, so in Tibetan Buddhism, there's this um, there's this teaching rest in the nature of Alia. Is that the is Alia the uh, original self that you're talking about? No, the the Alia is is along with the three natures. This is the Yogacara Chitamatra teachings, mind only teachings, which are a kind of idealistic teachings, but. The mind, you have six senses. The, the early Buddhism talked about six senses, our normal five plus the sense of mind. Chittamatra Yogacara added three more to that. The alaya, which is like this store consciousness. It has been likened to the unconscious by some, but I think that can be helpful, but not too tightly. So you have the alaya vijnana, which is the store consciousness. And then you have manas, which is... 
which turns our store consciousness back towards being captured by the self. So if you like, the alaya is, is a middle layer and in normal, in normal working, it is captured by our misunderstanding, by our ignorance and taken back in, by manas into the self. Above the alaya is yana, which is true, pure understanding, uncorrupted, without the veils and dispositions of ignorance and grasping. And sometimes enlightenment is seen as a turning of a turning of the mind. I forget the term at the moment, but it turns the mind instead of being captured on, if you like, the downward spiral by manas and then into our normal senses. It goes upwards. It, it evades the curtains and the stuff that gets in the way and gets into pure mind. So I had another question. So earlier today, you mentioned the word shanyata. Yes. as having an implication of of potential is that is that potential that is that the um, the quality of emptiness is that what you're talking about I would say that this the 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 zhendong, the other emptiness certainly exas- exaggerates or, or forwards this sense of potential in it the madhyamika I would say just leaves it as being neither is or is not and and I think it has potential because it is it is undefined. But it doesn't have, if you like, a positive twist any more than it has a negative one. But I think this Zhendong understanding of emptiness is more positive because it, it links it with sort of original mind whose essence is emptiness. Nature is knowing, is cognizant. It's kind of difficult to define. A lot of it is on the borders of um, the ineffable. And I think is that, you know, those that wrote about it initially wrote out of deep experience. You know, you, you you go back if you think of that lovely Zen story of um, was it the Buddha teaching, and and I, I always forget whether it was the Buddha who held up a flower or whether it was Mahakasyapa who held up the flower, and one of them, you know, anyway, they understood it was beyond words. And what do they say? The Zen that can be told is, you know, is 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 or it's beyond words, and it 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 it's. Far Eastern Buddhism is very influenced by Taoism. You know, the Tao that can be expressed is not the Tao. Um, I have a paraphrase here of what I think I heard you say. Um, emptiness is experiential versus conceptual. 
and the experience of emptiness changes with the turning of the wheel. Can you correct me? Um, no, uh, yes and no. The teachings of the Buddha have often sort of historically been described as three turnings of the wheel. Now, the teachings on emptiness from the second turning of the wheel are different from those of what is called the third turning of the wheel. The, the teachings of the second... I mean, these are all... These turnings of the wheel, if you like, historical periods, are after the fact. You know, they are made by commentators and scholars long, long after the Buddha. Um, but the teachings of the third turning of the wheel are more of those that have original mind and have um, describe emptiness as the emptiness, the non-duality of the relationship between consciousness and object, knower and known. So they are more positing a big mind of which we can all partake. So, so emptiness is the way we experience reality. I don't think emptiness is anything. These okay. are different ways of describing yes. Yes. the experience of emptiness or the concept of emptying out. or the con It's almost like saying the concept of no concept, which is why it becomes very difficult um, to put it into words. Because when we say we say things are empty because they are dependent upon causes and conditions, because they are interdependent. Things are empty of essence because they are interdependent. Because they are dependent on causes and conditions, parts and wholes, and our designation by language and custom. So we're almost trying to get back before the designation. We're using words to describe something that words misappropriate, if you like. I, I wonder if part of the problem is that Pali is a language of process and English is a language of objects. And it's very hard to to get over that um, I, I, intention of the language. That's a very good point. I think you're absolutely right there. I think... Sorry. My ears aren't big enough. Um, I think you're absolutely right. I think it is both in the language and our very use of language is to name things and pin them down. So the very use of language itself. But I guess language is sort of like selves too, really useful, couldn't live without it. 
But we need to hold it lightly. Not to grasp it and deeply identify the thing with its name. That's, but I think you're right about Pali too. And um, certainly Tibetan. Tibetan is a very floaty language. Sanskrit, interestingly, is, is a very concise language, rather like Latin. It's like doing jigsaw puzzles. You know, you have cases and conjunctions, and it's like a jigsaw puzzle, and it just fits like that. Tibetan, you can know every word of a sentence and not know what the hell it's in. At least that's my experience of it. So... More questions? Attempt a question from an unbelievably I'm going to attempt a question from the level of my ignorance, which is oh, good. quite low. So a lot of this has gone over my head, but is original mind what you achieve when you've gotten through causes and conditions and are no longer influenced by them? Or is that never happening? (laughs) No, I don't think... I mean, we're never going to get beyond causes and conditions. Okay, so... But when... in In the text about original mind, you talk... There's lots of talk about veils and obscuration. And these original mind is pure, and you know its its essence is emptiness. Its nature is knowing. It has this knowing, and it is its energy, its resonance is unimpeded. It's everywhere. Um, but we are cut off from this vast expanse of potential. Not by causes and conditions, I think so much as by ourselves, by our seeing, by our interpreting our world from within the tight little cages of ourself. I think. Um, Hmm. No more questions? I'm wondering if you'd like a sit now before lunch rather than after lunch. A sit, a, a small sitting, another sort of 20 minutes before lunch rather than doing it after lunch. I wasn't sure whether to let you have a sit after lunch so you could quietly go to sleep. Um, or whether you would like to sit now and we will go on and do another. I think, I think it feels good that we should have a sit which is going to take us back to some more inquiry about ourselves. Okay.
once again try and settle in, check in with how you are. And note I'm saying how you are, yourself is, while also trying to unpick this sense of self, which might say something about what is empty and what remains. But let your attention ride on your breath. Bring your body and mind together with your breath. Notice your breath as it goes out beyond the limits of your body. And as you inhale the air in again. And once you have a sense of your own inner state, I want you to encourage you to move your attention out towards your relationships. How much of what you consider to be you is dependent on others? How much is dependent on your family and on early patterns and ideas of yourself that came from a very early age?
how much of what you consider as yourself is dependent on your friends and on the company you keep. Are you different when you're with different groups of people? How much of what you feel is yourself is dependent on your education and all the things that you have been taught, both the explicit teachings of school and the implicit teachings that you acquired from your surroundings. How much of what you think of as yourself is influenced by your nationality? By where you live? By the often implicit beliefs inherent in the way of life 
in which you play a part. in your work in the title that you may hold the position you may play How much of your identity rests in the eyes of others?
you may like to contemplate how your sense of yourself has changed over the years. Can you still touch your sense of self as a child, as a teenager? as a worker, as a parent. Consider the roles that you have played, that you are playing, that you will play. and how these affect your sense of self. And the ways that sense of self is reflected back by those who see you in all these different roles over time.
Does anyone want to say anything about that? Okay. Sorry. I was just um, contemplating the idea of showing up differently in different situations. And it seems to me, and I'd like your comment, that um, it depends a lot on my uh, intention. And I definitely want to show up differently when I'm in a job interview than when I'm in a conversation with a grandchild. But if my intention is to dazzle and uh, enhance my ego in either case, then not a good thing. But if I have a positive intention, it might be different. I think that's very interesting. I'm fascinated and delighted that you brought up intention. I was saying that when you're talking about things Buddhist, somehow you go in little circles and everything implicates everything else. Because I think one of the absolutely central facts about Buddhism is how important intention is. And in fact, there's there's a British scholar who's written very scholarly about what it's not what the Buddha taught, but the origins of Buddhism, in which he says that the real innovation of the Buddha was that he took the pan-Indian law of karma and reinterpreted it in terms of intention. If you like, he ethicized it and he, I think, psychologized it by making the important thing not the carrying out of rituals, of far pujas and things like this, but of intention. So he kind of internalized it, which is why <laughs> I, I, I've always thought of Buddhism as the first psychology, because it's all to do with mind and how we do that. So I think what you said is absolutely spot on. Yes. Thank you. Um, the part of the meditation where you had... Is it on? Okay. Oh, the part of the meditation um, that I was really um, absorbed by was imagining um, the dependence of, or the identification um, of, of uh, you know, this family, friends, environment, work, and kind of going out, out, out. <laughs> and imagining um, myself independent of those things, and who would I be without those things? And yes. um, that was very interesting, and it kind of brought up some fear mm-hmm. of, you know, because, you know, some insecurity that I would realize I really do depend on other, you know, these things. Um, but it also is really interesting to imagine 
um, being independent of those things and who would I be in, those situ in a situation yeah. where, for instance, you know, you go off wandering or traveling and you just um, separate yourself, mm -hmm. you know, from all these things and you learn to um, respond to, you know, what, what comes up or, you know, what's happening in front of you. Uh, and learn um, sort of who you are by that experience. Yes. Anyway. No, that's really, really that excellent. Very interesting to think about. No, thank you very much. That's really lovely and very profound, I think. I think I must have understood something about emptiness and interdependence because I thought that really we are an enmeshment, uh, entanglement of relationships mm -hmm. but in the very beginning I think there wasn't a grain of us I think that's, we really came out of emptiness. And then it's, you know, the, the embryo, our mm -hmm. embryo, mm -hmm. the, the egg of the mother was not us. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. semen of the father mm -hmm. was not us. Mm -hmm. They came together, that mm -hmm. was the first entanglement. Yeah, entanglement's lovely this word. Entanglement, there were layers and layers of additional interrelationships, whether it's family, whether it's uh, education, mm -hmm. whether it's culture, whether it's travel. Mm -hmm. Wow. So that was for the first Am I on, on yeah, absolutely on the right. I think you're on the right track. I mean, I, I'm not the one to judge, you know. But to me, because that's I knew quite lovely. I understood the independent arising. Mm -hmm. I understood what it meant. That's it. You got it. Mm -hmm. I mean, thank you. That was really lovely. That was a great gift. Thank you very much. Um, I think, if unless anyone else has got anything they're dying to say, this is possibly a good. It's a lovely place to stop for lunch and just bringing those two together. I want to say that all those rather complex models I talked to you about, this emptiness and that emptiness, um, and you're saying you didn't, you know, you'd never quite got dependent origination as given in a particular model, goes back to what you said about intention. The intention of all these models is, is to teach us, I think, the complementarity of emptiness and existence, that knowing the emptiness of essence, we may better, pure, more purely see existence by evading the grasping for certainty and for self, which is virtually inherent in us we can embrace that contingency without wanting to paint ourselves onto it. 
So I think those last two responses were absolutely wonderful. Thank you very much indeed. And I guess we have a lunch break and Caroline will tell us how long for.